0: They Shall Expel Demons What You Need to Know About Demons Your Invisible Enemies by Derek Prince Chapter 4 My Struggle with Depression My Mind Goes Back to the Years After World War II I had served four and a half years with the British forces in the Middle East. Then, at the time of my discharge, I married Lydia Christensen, a Danish schoolteacher who was head of a small children's home in Jerusalem. Through my marriage to Lydia, I became father of a ready-made family of eight girls of whom six were Jewish. One was a Palestinian Arab, and the youngest was English. Together, as a family, we witnessed the rebirth of the state of Israel in 1948, and then moved to London. We found a city still struggling wearily to rebuild its life from the shattering impact of the war. Night after night, the Nazi bombers had ruined, ruined, correction, rained down terror and destruction on a population that had no way to retaliate. Long after the bombs had ceased to fall, the raw scars were still visible throughout the city. Many of the streets reminded me of a person trying to smile with two or three front teeth knocked out. In the midst of the rows of houses that remained standing, vacant, weed-filled lots served as a wordless memorial to whole families that had perished with their homes. Uglier still were vacant shelves of houses that remained standing, but with blackened, crumbling walls and boarded windows. The eye searched in vain for any remnant of elegance or beauty. The external scars of the city were matched by the emotional scars the people bore within themselves. The prevailing mood was one of weary cynicism. Britain had emerged victorious from the war, but the fruits of victory were bitter. All but the most basic forms of food were scarce. Such commodities as sugar, butter, tea, and tobacco, which might have made life just a little easier to enjoy, or at least to endure, were still strictly rationed. Cues were long, tempers frayed. The level of spiritual life in Britain was lower than it had been for at least 200 years. Fewer than 5% of the population regularly attended any place of worship. Many churches have been either boarded up or converted into furniture storehouses. Of the churches that remained open, few presented any positive message of hope that could serve as an antidote to the prevailing depression. Shortly after we settled in London, I began pastoring a small Pentecostal congregation near the center of the city. My prevailing impression of that time is one of grayness. The streets were gray, the houses were gray, the people were gray. Most of the time, the skies too were gray. The fuel being used for heating at the time blocked at least 25% of the sunlight that would have helped to relieve the grayness. In winter, the city was shrouded from time to time by fog so dense you could not see your own hand stretched out in front of you. Yet there was another kind of grayness that was even more depressing. It was the strange, indefinable grayness inside my own soul. By the spiritual standards of the time... I was a relatively successful minister. Each week a person would come to the Lord or I would witness a miracle of healing or some other demonstration of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Yet I had a continuous inner sense of frustration. An inaudible voice seemed to whisper, others may succeed, but you won't. My experience up to this time had been a series of successes. Elected as a King's Scholar at Eton at age 13, I had gone on to King's College, Cambridge as the Senior Scholar of my year. After graduating with first-class honors in both parts of the Classical Tree Posts, the official course of study in Latin and Greek languages, culture, and history. I had then been selected as the senior research student of the university for two years. Finally, at age 24, I had been elected to a coveted position as a fellow of King's College, Cambridge. During the war, my service with the medical corps in a non-combatant role had barred me from promotion to officer rank. Nevertheless, I had emerged with the highest character qualification that the British Army had to bestow. That character qualification was exemplary. During my military service, I experienced a supernatural encounter with Jesus Christ that revolutionized my goals in life. Since my discharge, I could see how God had led me step by step to my present ministry as a pastor. This was an irony I could not resolve. While I had been making my own way through life, ignoring God, I had an unbroken record of success. Yet now, as I was sincerely seeking to follow God's plan for my life, I was oppressed by the continuing sense that I could never expect to succeed. In all of this, I never doubted the reality of my salvation. It was too deep and too permanent. Yet at times, depression descended on me like a gray mist that shrouded my head and shoulders. Breaking out of this mist was like attempting to break out of prison. I felt isolated and lonely, shut off from meaningful communication, even with those closest to me, my wife daughters. I did not know any mature minister to whom I could turn for help. I tried every spiritual means I knew to throw off this depression. I read my Bible faithfully at least twice a day. I fasted one day each week. At times I devoted several days or a week to intensive prayer and fasting at such times the depression lifted for a while but inevitably it returned each time it did my hopelessness grew deeper i was familiar with romans 6 verse 11 which instructs us to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sinned king james version day after day i reckoned myself dead to sin and to my, any consequence of depression that it had brought on me but i could not seem to experience the latter half of the verse being alive unto god through jesus christ Overcoming My Enemy. Finally, in 1953, when I had exhausted all my own resources, God came to my help in a way I had never contemplated. I was reading the opening verses of Isaiah 61, which described the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in bearing testimony to the message of the gospel Verses Jesus applied to himself in the synagogue in Nazareth. See Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. As I came to the words in verse 3, quote, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Also, called a spirit of despair and a spirit of fainting. I could read no further. It was as though the phrase, the spirit of heaviness, was underlined by some invisible hand. I repeated the phrase to myself, the spirit of heaviness. Was this God's diagnosis of my condition Could it mean that the force I was struggling with was not part of myself, but an alien person, an evil spirit being that somehow occupied an area of my mind? I recalled a term I had once heard but did not understand, familiar spirit. Did it possibly refer to some kind of evil power that attached itself to the members of a family moving down from generation to generation? I thought about an aspect of my father's character that always puzzled me. He was a good moral man and a successful officer who had retired from the army with the rank of colonel. For 98% of the time, he behaved like the English gentleman he was. But during the fractional 2% of the time, I had seen something in him quite alien to his own personality. Some apparently trivial incident would upset him, and for as long as 24 hours, he would lapse into rigid, stony silence. He would shut himself off from my mother and would not open his mouth even to say thank you for a cup of tea. Then, with no apparent reason, he would return to his normal, well-mannered self. With this new insight, I saw that a similar dark spirit had followed me through my life from childhood onward. Apparently it had studied my temperament and was familiar with my weakness and my reactions. It knew just when I would be most vulnerable to its pressures. It now had one main objective, to prevent me from serving Christ effectively. This was a decisive moment in my life. I had always regarded my depression and negative attitude as an expression of my own character, something I had been born with. I had felt guilty that I was not a better Christian. Now it became clear to me that my struggle was not against part of my own personality at all. Immediately, the Holy Spirit brought to my mind the promise of Joel chapter 2, verse 32 And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. King James Version. From my study of Hebrew, I knew this verb also means to save or to rescue. I determined to apply this promise and to act on it. I said a simple prayer that went something like this, quote, Lord, you've shown me that I have been oppressed by a spirit of heaviness, but you have promised in your word that if I call on your name, I shall be delivered. So I'm calling on you now to deliver me in the name of Jesus. End quote the response was immediately the response was immediate something like a huge heavenly vacuum cleaner came down over me and sucked away the gray mist that shrouded my head and shoulders at the same time a pressure in the area of my chest was forcibly released and i gave a little gasp God had answered my prayer. Suddenly, everything around me seemed brighter. I felt as if a heavy burden had been lifted from my shoulders. I was free. All my life, I had been under that oppression. I felt strange to be free, but I dis- discovered quickly that freedom was normal and that op- depression was abnormal. My old enemy did not give up on me. I still had to struggle against depression. But the great difference now was that its attacks came from without, not from within. I gradually learned how to withstand it. The main thrust of the attacks was to induce in me reactions or attitudes of pessimism. When everything seemed to be going wrong, I would begin to entertain negative thoughts about what I could expect to happen. Quite soon, I would feel the all-too-familiar gray mist begin to settle down over my shoulder and head. At this point, God taught me another important lesson. He would do for me what I could not do for myself, but he would not do for me what he required me to do for myself. God had responded to my cry and delivered me from the spirit of heaviness, but after that he held me responsible to exercise spiritual and scriptural discipline over my own thoughts, clearly, I needed something to protect my mind as I meditated on Paul's list of spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter six verses thirteen through eighteen. I concluded that what Paul calls the helmet of salvation was provided for the protection of my mind. This left me wondering, do I already have the helmet of salvation? I know I am saved. Does that mean I have the helmet automatically? Then I saw that Paul was writing in Christians, rather two Christians, who were already saved. But he still instructed them to take the helmet of salvation. This placed the responsibility on me. I had to take the helmet for myself. But what was the helmet? Fortunately, I was using a Bible with cross-references. The cross-reference to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 was 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. Quote, putting on for a helmet the hope of salvation, End quote, King James Version. So the helmet God had provided to protect my mind was hope. This appealed to my logical mind. My problem was pessimism, but the opposite of pessimism is optimism. Hoping continually for the best hope therefore was my protection from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 8 i was led to hebrews chapter 6 verses 18 through 20 that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, but sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Within the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus. I find here two further pictures of hope. First, hope is compared to the horns of the altar under the old covenant when a man was being pursued by an enemy seeking to kill him he could find a solid asylum by clinging to the horns of the altar where his enemy could not reach him for me the altar spoke of the sacrifice Jesus made for me on the cross its horns Represented my hope, which was based on his sacrifice. As long as I clung tenaciously to this hope, my enemy could not approach to destroy me. What about the second picture of hope as an anchor? This provoked a brief dialogue in my mind. What needs an anchor? a ship. What does a ship need an anchor for? Because it floats in water, an unstable element that provides nothing for it to hold on to. It passes its anchor through the unstable element, therefore, and fastens it onto something firm and immovable, such as a rock I saw that hope could be like that in my life, an anchor passing through the turmoil and instability of this life and fastened forever on the eternal rock of ages, who is Jesus. As I meditated on this, however, I realized there is a difference between hope and wishful thinking. Reading on in Hebrews, I saw that faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the King James Version. The kind of hope I needed as an anchor had to be based on a solid foundation of faith in the statements and promises of God's word. Without this biblical foundation, hope could prove to be nothing but wishful thinking. Gradually, I worked out a simple, practical way to apply these truths in my everyday life. I learned to distinguish between thoughts that proceeded from my own mind and those insulated by the demon. Every time my enemy approached me, and sought to induce negative and pessimistic thoughts, I disciplined myself to counter with a positive word from Scripture. If the demon suggested that things were going wrong, I would counter with Romans chapter 8, verse 28, All things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. I love God, I would answer my invisible enemy, and I am called according to his purpose. Therefore, all these things are working together for my good. From time to time, the demon would resort to the tactic it had often used successfully in the past you'll never succeed i would counter this with philippians chapter 4 verse 13 i can do all things through christ who strengthens me complete victory did not come immediately but over the course of time my mental reflexes were built up to the point that it was almost automatic to counter any negative suggestion from the demon with some opposite positive word from the scripture. As a result, that particular demon seldom wastes much time now in attacking me. God has also begun to teach me the importance of thanking and praising him continually. This would surround me, I discovered, with an atmosphere that repelled demons. I was impressed by the words of David in Psalm 34, verse 1. Quote, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. End quote. The introduction to this psalm indicates that at this point in David's life, he was a fugitive from King Saul who was seeking to kill him. He had escaped to the court of a Gentile king, Abimelech, or Achish, who did not give him a warm welcome. To save his life, David, feigned madness in their hands, Scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. First Samuel chapter twenty-one verse thirteen. If David could continue blessing God in that situation, I reasoned, there is no situation in which I should not be doing the same. Lessons. Out of all these struggles, I learned three lessons that have ever since proven invaluable. First, the reality of demonic activity as described in the New Testament. Second, the supernatural provision God has made for deliverance. And third, the need to maintain deliverance by the disciplined application of scripture. Christians often tend to be one-sided in their approach to the issue of deliverance. Some place all their emphasis on the actual process of expelling a demon. Others reject the supernatural element in deliverance and stress only the need for Christian discipline. The truth is that neither is a substitute for the other. Deliverance cannot take the place of discipline, and discipline cannot take the place of deliverance. Both are needed. Looking back over the years, I have asked myself from time to time, what course would my life have taken if God had not come to my help with his supernatural power and deliver me from that evil quote, "spirit of heaviness" end quote. I have no doubt that sooner or later I would have given way to despair and been forced out of the ministry how wonderful therefore to look back on the more than 40 years of fruitful ministry that have followed my deliverance. I realize, however, that my struggle with demons was not a strange or unique experience. On the contrary, those called into Christian ministry are, I believe, among Satan's prime targets. He subjects them to Relentless demonic pressure and torment, aiming to force them out of their ministry. All too often, he is successful. There is only one sure protection, learning how to recognize demonic activity and deal with it according to the pattern established by Jesus. That is one main reason I feel constrained to write this book. That is the end of chapter 4.